And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Back to the Bins. In case you didn't notice, it's Assistant Editor's Month, and you know what that means. That's right. The regular freaks are gone, and the other freaks have taken over the asylum. <laughs> I am one of your special assistant editors this month. My name is Luke Giaconetti. Welcome to the show. Thank you for downloading it. And at this time, I'd like to introduce my fellow assistant editors for this episode. Introducing first, uh, my good friend, Mr. Gene Hendricks. Greetings, programs. Good to have you on, Gene. And yes, uh, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> uh, it's an honor just to be nominated, frankly. And uh, my other assistant editor in this episode, you can hear him laughing there in the background, one half internet sensation duo, Dr. Tar and Professor Feather, I give you Professor Alan Middleton. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. You know, after 12 years as an associate professor, I think assistant editor is a promotion. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you went you went from unpaid intern to assistant editor. That's pretty good in this That's program. progress, man. <laughs> yeah, we're, you're going to have more responsibilities, but we're not going to be able to pay you as much, so I hope that's okay. Yes! <laughs> yes! That's the way it normally runs. You know, uh, I've worked in the private sector. <laughs> I say, I, I've worked in the private sector. They expect results, but... Uh, uh, no, so, uh, as I said, this is, in fact, Assistant Editor's Month, and so Paul and Dr. Bill and Scott, they're all on vacation in Tahiti, I think they said, which means they've got, like, wires running into their brain, rewiring them or something. I don't know. <laughs> Tahiti means different things to different people. But It's a magical place. It's a magical place. Land of enchantment. It's a magical place. Land of enchantment. You know, honest, actually, all, all, uh, all kidding aside, I was driving back from Alabama the other day, and I passed somebody with New Mexico plates, and I so, land of enchantment right there. But uh, <laughs> so sh shout out to any New Mexico uh, listeners we may have here on Back to the Bins. But uh, So they are, they are on vacation. They're taking some time off, so we are stepping in uh, to fill the void, as it were. Vacation. On, uh, vacation, that's what we're calling it. I heard it was a four-week plea deal. And I thought that's what they – well, anyway, whatever. I was going mean, to say – I mean, That's I, details. Yeah, the, the memorandum said we weren't supposed to refer to that, so – Oh, shoot. You know um, – you know, Oh, not, he, he's not part of the company, so he probably didn't get it. Yeah, didn't get the See, memo. It's, there you go. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the outside usurper. Well, th this is why I've said for I've said for many years, and Gene, I think you've agreed with me. We need some kind of electronic database for these instead of just paper memo memos. This isn't the seventies. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on, how hard could <laughs> well, this be to set this up? 
Dufo doesn't want to spend the money. I, I know he doesn't want to spend it, and 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 but you know you got to spend money to make money. But Signore Damanzo has gone his entire career flaunting that, so I, I guess we shouldn't expect change. You can't you can't take blood from a stone. But uh, be that as it may, uh, we've got. They understand the risks of a paper trail. I'm yeah. Just saying, <laughs> you don't want to be the paper chase guy, that's for sure. But this is. Uh, <laughs> We've got a, a great trio of books uh, for you this evening, some classics from uh, Marvel, DC, and Independent, the world of third-party comics. So uh, we have, uh, we did some, uh, we, we drew lots uh, backstage in the green room, and uh, so we have decided that the Marvel book shall go first, so I shall throw it over to Gene. All right, uh, and this is not your classic kind of Marvel, although it could technically be, because Marvel did a lot of licensed stuff. Uh, this time we ha- we do have the A Team first collector's item issue. Cover date on here is March 1984. On sale date December 13th, 1983. Thank you to Mike's amazing World of Comics for that information. Story Jim Salakrup. Co plots, pencils, and colors Marie Severin. Inks Chick Stone. Letters Brad Joyce. Art direction John Ramita. Editor, Saul Brodsky. Editor-in-Chief, Jim Shooter. Cover by John Romita and Marie Severin. On the cover, we have B.A. Baracus, front and center, hands on hips, standing over a pile of diamonds. He's surrounded by the rest of the team, all with guns, except Murdoch, who has a walkie-talkie. You can't trust the crazy guy with a gun. The copy reads, The A-Team, all action, all, all the action, all the thrills, now in their very own Marvel comic. On the inside, we have the TV intro. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. And so on. (laughs) And so on and so on. (laughs) (laughs) Under pictures of the A-Team, including Amy, the title reads, Diamonds are a thief's best friend. We open with B.A. buying a hot dog with everything on it in his old neighborhood. He walks around taking in the sights as the narration tells us how much he's risking by coming here. He stops a boy from stealing hubcaps and lectures him on getting a skill, then a job, rather than become a thief. He's interrupted by Mario Ronda, an old friend from the neighborhood. They head to Duffy's Tavern, but Duffy ain't there, to have a drink. B.A., as usual, is drinking milk. Seeing his drink choice, a loudmouth at the end of the bar starts to make comments. B.A. and Mario ignore them until he and his buddies surround the pair. Having had enough, B.A. and Mario wipe the floor with the four men, piling them neatly in a corner. They part ways after this, and B.A. heads back to the Stanford Hotel, where the rest of the team waits with a job. They have been hired by Roger Townsend to find who is stealing diamonds from his diamond mines and selling them to a fence in Puerto Rico. During the flashback of Hannibal's meeting with Townsend, we see him berate his son Paul for entering the office without knocking. 
This causes Miss Pris, the assistant, to leave in order to deal with the papers, looking quite upset about it. Amy's sources at the newspaper have identified the fences as the Lopez brothers and their delivery boy as Mario Ronda. This causes B.A. to lose his cool, but Hannibal calms him down. At the Pelican Arms Hotel in Miami, we meet up with Mario, who has delivered diamonds to a sheik and been paid with a briefcase full of money. Two thugs attempt to rob him in the elevator, but that doesn't work out for them. He then boards a flight to Puerto Rico and delivers the money to the Lopez brothers. At a private airfield outside of L.A., B.A. is refusing to get on the plane. Shocker. Hannibal has brought a ringer, though, as Stephen Kaminsky shows up and hypnotizes B.A. into losing his fear of flying. Well, it's better than drugged milk, I guess. Luckily, this lasts until the plane touches down in Puerto Rico. The team, along with Miss Pris, check into the Tropicana Arms Hotel, while B.A. talks to Mario alone. Hannibal, Face, and Murdoch make a deal with the Lopez brothers to buy diamonds for a certain communist superpower. Amy and Miss Pris are having dinner that night when Pris asks for the details on Hannibal's plan, while acting shocked that someone she knows is a thief. The next day, the A-Team work the plan and find out that the inside man is none other, none other than Paul Townsend. As the team is ready to move in, members of the Lopez gang use tear gas to make their escape. Hannibal, Face, Murdoch, and Amy wonder who tipped off Townsend and Lopez. Pris or B.A.? We cut to B.A., waiting in the Lopez brothers' room for Mario to show up. There's the standard fight in which B.A. is winning until Mario pulls a gun on him. Mario reveals that he's an FBI agent who's been working undercover to bust the diamond ring. They make up, and we cut to the lobby, where Pris is checking out. She can't believe that Paul is involved and leaves. Later, Mario and B.A. show up in Hannibal's room, where B.A. tells the group that Mario is a G-man. While this is going on, Amy finds the disguise that Pris wore when they checked in, and something else. She tells the guys, and Hannibal announces that he's got a plan, so they need to head to the airport. Back in L.A., Townsend is furious that Hannibal didn't catch the thieves and, worse yet, accused his son of being in cahoots with them. Hannibal then goes about proving that Paul wasn't the inside man. It was Pris, in disguise as Paul, that set everything up. She thought that the company should belong to her since Townsend loved her but married her sister, all the while she was helping to build the company up. We close with Mario and B.A., traveling home on a cruise ship. Mario's having a great time, but B.A. is seasick. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you guys think of this? Well, it, it's, it's definitely of a type, isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, you know, the, the A-Team, the thing about the A-Team is that I, I think looking back at it now, um, in retrospect, especially younger uh, you know, bloggers or opinion uh, opinion makers—they forget just how popular this show was. I mean, this was this was the show. Everybody watched the A Team back in the '80s when when this came out. I mean, the debut episode premiered after the Super Bowl, didn't it? I think so. Yeah. So I mean, th this was a you know um, you know capital letters big deal. So you know the it, fact it, that it's a comic book is is testament to that. Yeah, and they and, were able to license it out. Mm -hmm. 
and and I think in a, in a lot of ways this does kind of hit a lot of the notes. It tones it down and makes it a bit more, uh, you know, Marvel comics in the 1980s kid reader friendly. But it certainly does capture kind of the spirit of the A team with the, uh, you know, the kind of broad characters and the uh, I ain't getting on no plane and all that. So I think I think it hits the mark pretty well if you're looking for an A team uh, comic. Uh, whether you're looking for one or not is another question altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it, thought it, the fir- the, those first eight or ten pages, there was a lot of talking. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of talking. Yes. And really, the only fight scene is the fight scene between the two friends. And after a page and a half, oh, we're we're buddies after all. Mm-hmm. So it was like, uh, I was looking for something a little more action comic. Action yeah. packed in the comic book sense. Yeah, it, it it's more of a, a who done it than a real mm-hmm. A team story because I mean when when you think of the A team, and I often do. I was I was a huge A <laughs> team fan. Jeans at work, uh, like man, the A team. Yeah. <laughs> more like I pay the fool that brings me more plans. <laughs> uh, but I. Love the A-Team growing up. One of the things that we would constantly play at recess in elementary school was the A-Team. As as the the biggest one, I was always B.A., so I, I had to drive the van. <laughs> and my, uh, my good buddy Adam Worth calls the A-Team the single best TV show in history. So you know where he stands. <laughs> but even so, I mean, the A-Team never really killed anyone. They always shot guns, but always went, you know, into the vehicles or right in front of the people or something. Mm-hmm. This is even more toned down than that. Yeah, right. Which is which is scary. I'm, I mean, they hardly, they hardly even have guns in here, and they never use them. Right. It's like a kid's primer for watching the TV show. It's mm-hmm. Like this is kind of what you can expect. Mm-hmm. Here you go. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it did hit some of the key formula aspects of an A-Team episode. Yeah, I mean, the only thing missing, I think, is breaking Murdoch out of the uh, VA hospital. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which we can assume happened before the episode began, <laughs> since he's there in the hotel. So there's a deleted scene somewhere out there of them yeah, busting Murdoch out. That's while B.A. was wandering his old neighborhood, you know, completely inconspicuous. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I love how the narration is saying, hey, you know, he's he's risking being captured by coming here. Yeah, he's risking being spotted by every single person there. Yeah. Well. Fortunately, <laughs> he's not conspicuous. So yeah. that helps. So you can tell B. Uh, yeah, he never read his early Luke Cage comics and learned to be inconspicuous and not go back to your old neighborhood when you're on the run from the law. So. I was going to say he, he never did the uh, Ben Grimm. Of just having you know tr- trench coat that doesn't quite fit and hat. Yep, <laughs> that works all the time. I hear. <laughs> Not even a pair of glasses. I hear that's pretty awesome too. Yeah, but yeah, it's. It, I mean, overall, it's all right. I I can kind of see why it didn't go past three issues. You know, because it it doesn't really give you the flavor of the A team. It's just kind of basic, mm-hmm. and and. I mean, the art's all right. It's uh, it's not super photo-referenced. I mean, you can tell who the characters are. It's kind of like a um, a filmation Star Trek kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, or 
but you know what's but interesting? they're reasonable. But but I mean the likenesses are reasonable. You yeah. can tell. You and, can yeah. tell who's who, and that is and, not always the case right. with and, a licensed property. And I and I will say this: the art is um, penciled and colored by Marie Severin. And if I'm remembering right, didn't Marie Severin do a lot of Marvel's kind of kind of during the the the, the Marvel age during the early the early days of Marvel? Didn't she do a lot of their comedy stuff? Like uh, in the late '60s and all that, and she she mm, was good okay. at doing caricatures, and she used right. to do, I forget the name of it, and and uh, Stephen Lacey and Andrew Leyland are mad at me because I remember reading hearing about this on the Fantastic Cast, where there was the there was the book it wasn't it wasn't what I forget what it was it wasn't what though but it was that type of book where it was kind of making fun of the Marvel universe and making fun of the Marvel bullpen. I remember Marie Severin was always the one who drew the Marvel bullpen. And she ah, would do right, the caricatures right, and right. stuff. So <laughs> the art here, like, look, like flipping through it, it's clear. Like you say, it's everyone is is clear, but it's it's a little cartoony, you know. Mm-hmm. And it kind of yeah. stays with the cartoonish nature of the story. So I think uh, uh, Severin, she's a very good fit on this because, like right. I said, the art it, it's a little cartoony. Everybody's got kind of, uh, you know, like, like look here on on page six at the bottom, Murdoch's given the old crazy eye. There, right, you know, and that's but it's mm, it's a right. it, but it's a very characterful uh, piece, and then Hannibal's got the, uh, you know, got got the cigar and the big grin on his face, you know, and, and BA's looking surly. So I think they do a good job of, of I think Severn does a good job of capturing the the a cartoonish uh, caricatures sort of mm-hmm. of the characters, even if she's not going for a realistic style. I think it's it's uh, it's well done, uh, you know, to a point. She was uh, I, I never think of Marie Severn as a as a big like um, like action. Or, or you know, uh, you know, big fight scenes. I never really think of Marie Severin, but the character bits, I think she does a very good job on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did I agree. You, did you see on the top of page ten the uh, the movie that the guy's watching on his flight to Puerto Rico? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> My prediction: pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so yeah, a sense of humor. I like yeah. the yeah. sense of humor. Yeah, I, I like, like how they that, threw that in. Yeah, I, I, I like that BA makes fun of the guy for his choice of hats. Yeah, <laughs> and then he then he punches one of the hats. I mean, there was there was enough of that lightness mm-hmm. that gave it a nice a nice likable sort of vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would say this is this is like the all ages version of the A-Team. This, right. this is the, uh, right. the the Rambo cartoon version. Yeah. This is the, <laughs> you know? the, the A-Team in the Force of Freedom crossover yes. that never happened. I totally would have bought that. I mean, you oh, know, yeah. when, I, when I read this the first time, I'm thinking, you know, actually, for, for a licensed book, this is this is pretty this is pretty pretty typical Marvel licensed book stuff. And I, and I you know, and, 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 it, and I was digging on it. And then, um, you know, for for good or ill, I got to the bullpen bulletins, which is included in the copy that that we were reading for this episode. And if you mm-hmm. take a look over on the bullpen bulletins, uh, down in the Mighty Marvel checklist, in the first column is GI Joe number twenty one, which is of course the silent interlude. Right. So to me, it's like, oh, okay, well, this is kind of a typical uh, licensed book. And then I see the silent interlude is released the same month, and I'm like, yeah, but a, a licensed book could be so much better than this. Exactly. <laughs> right and, you know. Also, further down that uh, in that column is uh, Chris Star number six. Yes. So it could also be the other end yes. of the licensed it property. Could be, be absolutely much worse. <laughs> yes, there is. It does kind of go both ways. Uh, just an aside, I do want to point out under graphic novels they have super boxers. 
which is one of the forgotten graphic novels, but I actually have that one. I got that one for a couple of bucks many years ago at my, my LCS, kind of a Marvel wants to do a 2000 AD type story, if you ever get a chance to check that out. But uh, huh. uh, that, that is unrelated to, to this. But, you know, but, but again, they got my brain thinking. It's like, okay, you know, a licensed 18 book could have been something on par with what Hama and company were doing over on G.I. Joe, Right. But at the same time, it didn't need to be because the A-Team was a successful property. G.I. Joe was launched out of the comic. So the, the comic was the, suce- the, you know, the, the successful media even before the cartoon. Whereas the A-Team, it's like, okay, well, we, an A-Team comic book makes perfect sense. You know, it, it's a comic booky type of show with, you know, uh, with the big tough guys with code names going on missions all over the world. I mean, it sounds like a comic book already. So I, I get, it's clear that they, there was different motivations, even though they were both licensed books, and you end they, up with two things that are of, of varying quality. It, when you think of it, they do have two very different purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, G.I. Joe, I mean, it's designed to sell the comics. I mean, it's designed to sell so, the toys. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, promote the, uh, you know, the animated series, that sort of thing. Where this... It's not really designed to promote the show. Speci- I, I wouldn't think. Maybe no, I, I a, a think, little bit. I think it's. I, I think it's the other way around. Yeah, they they knew that a good portion of the show's audience were kids like right. myself who also read comics. So, on where do you think this came from? Uh, <laughs> so, they they were trying to tap into that market, but apparently. There weren't enough of us out there that wanted the comic and the TV show. When we were just happy to watch the TV show, mm-hmm. right. yeah. Well, the TV show was free, right? So, but I mean, know. hey, th- this was only sixty cents. I know, but sixty cents. <laughs> I mean, only what? Are, gee, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's almost three comics. Caramba. <laughs> I mean, that's rolling. That's that's rolling nickels, man. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, back no, off there, I, Rockefeller. Jeez. <laughs> I I did have one quibble on page eleven. I usually don't point out coloring, except that's Marie Severin. She wrote it. She penciled it. She, she should have a, a a good amount of control on this. On page eleven, where B A is being hypnotized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, the the green lip. He has got <laughs> green teeth. A couple of yeah. times yep. Yep. On, in that page. Yeah. So I guess uh, I guess Marie was not communicating well with Herself? Marie. <laughs> <laughs> I, obviously, these things take place at different stages of the process and all mm-hmm. of that. But yeah, that that is kind of weird. At first, I was like, did, did they get like a green milk mustache? It's like, no, that's his teeth. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Dude needs to brush. <laughs> <laughs> and and I do love this. It's all very eighties. The on the same page, Hannibal smoking on the plane. Yes, yes. <laughs> I I always love that. You see the no smoking signs on the plane. It's like are they are they there just to tease the smokers? That, <laughs> maybe the, this one they'll turn it off. It's like you know, folks, we don't got to check in for a little. While. I'm gonna turn that light off. Bing. There, if you feel like there was up. once a day. Yeah. When, I mean that just tells you how old some of those are. Some of those airliners are. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but overall, it's it's a it's a fun read. It's yeah. not it's not super, but it's it's a fun read, especially if you already know the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you do 
you guys have anything else to say about it, or should we get to grading? I think we can get straight to the grading on this. It's it's a okay. pretty straightforward comic. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, um, my book, I'll go first. Uh, the cover, I think the cover is a step above the the rest of it, really, because it's it looks like a poster that I would want to have on my wall of of the A team and yeah you know, part of it is because John Romita was involved and you <laughs> you can tell. Uh so I'm gonna I'm gonna say that the cover is a B. You know, it, it grabs your attention but it's not, you know, super spectacular. Uh the art on the inside, that, you know, like you said, tended towards a little more on the cartoony uh but the likenesses were good. I mean you, you could see this uh, this Mr. T on the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it, it, it works, but it's not great. It's not horrible, so I'm going to give it a straight-up C. Uh, as far as the plot goes, pretty standard A-team stuff. Uh, a little silly in some cases. The the happenstance of, oh, I happen to be in the old neighborhood and just run across this guy who happens to be working undercover <laughs> for the FBI on the same thing I'm going to be working on. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little contrived. But, like I said, it's a fun read, so I'm going to give that a C as well. But So I guess it average out to a C-plus book. Yeah, I, I actually like the inside art a little more than the cover. I thought the cover it has got that plain background. I do like the fact that it has the diamonds on the cover. So there is like a nod to what's happening in the story. Right. I did like that. But I, the crazy text and the exclamation points at the top. All the action, all the thrills, first collector's item issued, just a a little too cluttered. I mean, that's not the artist's fault. That's the marketing department's fault. But taken as a piece, I, to, to me, that's a C plus. Mm. Uh, I actually thought the in, interior art was a little bit better than that, mostly because the likenesses are pretty good. And when you're doing a, a licensed comic, to me, that's almost job one. Uh, nothing exciting about the panel layouts or the storytelling, but it does the work so that's a, a b minus to me uh, to me and the story i think you know the plot itself is is a you know a, an average type of story i think that salakrup as a you know legitimate professional writer i think elevates it a little bit in terms of the dialogue and that sort of thing i thought there was a nice twist of B.A. and his old friend, the guy turning out to be an FBI agent, and then another sort of plot twist at the end. Uh, but boy, was there a lot of talking. <laughs> so eh, B- minus on that overall, B-, minus, a little bit above average. Yeah, the um, the I didn't even notice the diamonds on the cover the first time, to be honest with you. You know, it's... Uh, so I mean mm-hmm. the cover it, it's it's all right if if I saw this in I'm I, I'm using the analogy that if I found this in a cheapy bin and I saw the cover I'd say hey the A team so it it does its job but the details of it like I said it, it's it's nothing great it looks like they should be in Japan with the uh, uh, <laughs> right it's like the, the A team goes to Tokyo you know but that would uh, 
uh, be a little too much globe hopping in one issue. It, it's okay. It's an average kind of cover. You know, it stands out just because it's the A-team, I think, more than anything else. But if you don't know who the A-team is, I don't know it's going to do much for you. So uh, the cover, I, I give a C. Uh, the interior art, I'm kind of in the same boat as, as you were, Professor. Um, it's the, the panel layouts, the action is, is nothing kind of beyond what we normally expect in a Marvel book, but I do like Sever, uh, Marie Severin's faces and her expressions, even on some of the characters that don't have, um, you know, a, a live-action character, like uh, like Mario's got a lot of good facial expressions throughout this. We get Miss Pris and, the you know, the sun and all that. So there, there's some good faces and some good takes and expressions. So I, I gave the interior art a B-. minus. The story is about as basic as you can get but it does it does make sense it doesn't have any you know fantastic leaps of logic that take me out or anything so i'm called an average story and give it a c so overall i give it a, a c plus this is a uh if, if i pick this up at a you know when when going through a, a bin at a con or at a comic shop i, I wouldn't be annoyed that i spent a buck on it or whatever it, it's worth it's worth picking up and checking out if you have any affection for the eighteen. Don't tell my dean, but I think I, I was the easiest grader on this one. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's keep that quiet, okay? <laughs> well, I think Luke and I are trying to overcome nostalgia. <laughs> that, is, that is that is part of it. I mean, I I, I mean, I remember I had the um, the six inch tall Hannibal figure. That's, oh, and nice! My, and my brother, I want to say, had BA. I don't think we had Murdoch or Face, but I, I want I know I had Hannibal. And he was pretty cool. I mean, he didn't come with a cigar or nothing, but he, I remember he, he did. Uh, you know, <laughs> he looked good. But uh, so yeah, it was, it was it was fun. It was a you know, like I said, uh, I I didn't realize that Marvel had done an eighteen book until Gene sent it along. So this was this was fun for me, <laughs> fun for me to check out. Absolutely. You know, and 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 back on the art, it's just that I th I think I've read enough X Files comics where that's supposed to be Mulder and Scully. <laughs> but it's generic brunette and miscellaneous redhead, you know. So I, you know, I think that the fact that these are recognizable as the characters they're supposed to be, I'm, I'm, I may be uh, overemphasizing that uh, pretty basic <laughs> fact of a licensed comic. But. Well, you know, the the one that always kind of threw me off is the Whitman Black Hole comic, where. Some of the actors are photo referenced and some are not. Mm. So uh -huh. like, so like wow. Ro Robert Forster, Yvette Minot, Maximilian Schnell, they all look fine, but Anthony Perkins, Ernest Borgnine, yeah, not so much. So, <laughs> so it's a little jarring. <laughs> that's a miscellaneous uh, rights issue. That yeah. I think it's crazy. I, I can only imagine. I don't know what what the uh, you know what what the estate of uh, Anthony Perkins was asking for that they couldn't pull out. But the, be that as it may, who knows what uh, what wheelings and dealings happened in in 1979 for the black hole? But um, if you want to hear about the black hole, I did a great episode of that with um, Chris Honeywell and Scott Gardner. You can find on the old uh, way back in hallowed antiquity on Two True Freaks. One of the first uh, regular episodes of Two True Freaks I ever did was talking about the black hole. So. Uh, but I'm not talking about the black hole, and uh, so we're going to continue and uh, with the order that we agreed upon before we came on the air. So now I will be taking over with our, our DC comic for the evening, and I have brought World's Finest Comics, number 240, which is cover dated of September 1976, on sale on or about June 15th. 1976, with a cover price of 30 cents, 
The cover depicts Superman sitting on the throne of Kandor, wearing a crown, chained to it, as Professor X's Kandorian cousin orders Batman to shoot him and do as ordered Batman, execute King Superman. And the copy in the bottom says, how do you kill a Superman? Now, as we get into the story, I know what you're thinking. Luke, this doesn't make any sense. And that's because <laughs> our writer is none under than Back to the Bin's favorite and, and Quarter Bin podcast and, uh, um, I should say, relatively geeky podcast network favorite, <laughs> Zany Bob Haney is our writer in this issue, along with art by Dick Dillon and John Cowlin. And I uh, assume that the cover was just saying, worst birthday party ever. <laughs> <laughs> you brought me all the way to Burger King, and now you're going to kill me? <laughs> Well, they do got that two Whopper meals for 10 bucks, so that alone is worth getting you in the door, to be completely honest. Um, and, uh, well, and as I said, so art by Dick Dillon and John Callan, story by Bob Haney. Our story is How Do You Kill a Superman? And it goes a little something like this. Muffled drumbeats, stifled sobs, a solemn procession, a funeral fit for a king. But what's this? That one mortar with his hands in chains, and the corpse? How in the universe could he ever die? Down through the ages, mankind has pondered the great question of life and nature. But now fate's toothless mouth poses a riddle which can only be answered one way, with a whole world to pay off when it mockingly asks, how do you kill a superman? And uh, part one of our story is Dr. Superman, Mr. Hyde. And uh, in uh, Metropolis, Superman is, or excuse me, in Gotham City, Superman is engaging in some super dickery, taking out an angry sniper on the roof of a building by punching an antenna onto him, and uh, then knocking a jet out of his way in, uh, on the kind of borderline between two warring Middle Eastern countries, leading to an invasion across the truce line and uh, amped up rhetoric at the United Nations. And then uh, refusing, Superman refuses to help at a fire and save people, so Batman has to swing into action. And so the outrage sweeps across the city with Superman accused of becoming a Jekyll and Hyde, an unfeeling monster who should be outlawed. Batman is not sure what's going on, and so the world's greatest detective swings into action by taking the Bat helicopter all the way to the Arctic to... Superman's Fortress of Solitude, and he sees Van Z, who is Superman's double from Kandor, uh, fly all the way inside through the keyhole, and Batman uses uh, some uh, fine mist into the air, which freezes in the keyhole shape, and then using the Batcopter, breaks the lock and breaks into the Fortress of Solitude, which brings us to part two, Small World, Big Problem. And in the Fortress of Solitude, Batman is having a look around and saying that each t he's been here before, but each time it awes him. And as he stops to pick up a uh, zirconian eight-footed cat who somehow got out of his cage and put him away, Batman makes his way towards the bottled city of Kandor and uses the microwave beamer to shrink him down. And then he goes through the air tube, through the uh, stopper in the top of the bottle, and uses his bat hang glider, naturally, and his bat suction cups, naturally, to get his way into Kandor. Meanwhile, in Kandor, the ruling council is meeting, and they are going over uh, Superman's latest actions on the outside world, and they don't understand what's going on, and they flash back, very conveniently, 
and tell us about what had happened, that Candor had fallen on hard times, crops had failed, science was outmoded, people seethed with greed and hatred, and civil war threatened us. And so, rather than face the same doom that uh, destroyed Krypton, they decide to appoint Superman as their king, and you can tell he's king because he's wearing a crown, because DC Comics. And so, um, now that uh, the outside world uh, despises Superman, they don't know what to do. So, as Batman listens in, a giant robotic hand, a handy helper, if you will, reaches up and grabs him, and he is brought before the council. And uh, so Batman says he promises not to tell if they guarantee Superman will not make another foray outside if they keep him prisoner inside Kandor. And uh, the council doesn't know what to make of this. And uh, so they, they say, okay, you've always been a trusted friend. We will try it. So so commences them, uh, the king, Superman, being chained down to the throne and continuing to rule over the city. But at the same time as this happens, we see outside the bottle the weird giant zirconian cat leering down inside. So Batman exits, gets himself full size again, and puts the cat back in the cage. But as he does that, then King Superman fades away and disappears in a flash of light. And then reappears out in Earth and creates a tidal wave and an earthquake because he has actually increased the Earth's normal wobble by whamming into rocks really hard. This is some A-class super dickery right here from Superman <laughs> in this book. And so now they have uh, the the, count, the uh, Mr. President and the Chairman of the Soviet Union have, bur have buried their differences and agreed on a solemn decision. To save Earth from further danger, you must re-enter Kandor and execute Superman. And so if, you, if the Americans and the Soviets are in on this, you know it must be big. Leading us to part three, <laughs> the king is dead, long live the king, and I shall refrain from singing that like Dave Mustaine. Uh, so, Batman goes back to the Fortress of Solitude, I guessing the lock is still broken from when he busted him before. The cat is out again. He doesn't bother to put him away. Uh, but as he goes towards the city of Kandor, a big metal robot grabs him, and Batman's only his quick thinking and his use of his batarang saves him. And uh, then uh, he is a, attacked by a Superman robot, who, uh, you know, since Superman robots, again, always malfunction, he grabs him and throws him into a cage with the Blue Alpha Ape, which is a four-armed ape, again, because DC Comics. So as Batman goes and fights off the ape, clanging his head into the cage a couple of times and just uh, narrowly escaping, he gets to the Fortress computer and uh, gets his way back into Kandor, just as Superman is demanding that, uh, that the, his subjects uh, uh, obey him and not assassinate him. Here comes Batman, who's carrying a gun, which is, which is bizarre in and of itself. And so uh, we find out that this is actually a robot that he programmed as King Superman, and would, that he would hoped it would cover him reaching it, but he doesn't make it, and he gets arrested and brought before anyway. And then he goes and he gets... Uh, it, it gets very confusing here, because he goes and he says, Superman, I was wrong to try and kill you. Shake hands to show you forgive me. And he shakes hands, and Superman collapses, and we see that Batman had a poison-soaked thorn built into my gauntlet, which you overlooked when I was searched. I had to do it. And so so we get another version of the splash page as Superman is carried away uh, with the crown on his chest. Batman is handcuffed walking behind him, and he sobs a big, big old bat tear uh, that uh, he's being, as he says, they'll probably execute me for regicide. And um, so as this is going, the funeral procession's going, suddenly Superman's body expands, 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 and grows giant and crashes through the dome 
somehow not killing everyone in Candor. And then uh, he is carried away by a robot. And uh, Batman says, Van Z, you Candorians programmed that thing like you did all the Fortress defenses to stop it. But we didn't program anything. And a mysterious voice goes, of course not, I did. And it's the Zirconian cat who is talking. And he says how one of his lesser abilities compared is to program machines compared to how I have taken over the Fortress and all of its secrets. <laughs> And so that the cat apparently is the one... And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for for you you. two pesky superheroes. It wasn't for (laughs) you, Batman. (laughs) He turned into Skeletor for a second there. (laughs) So using a brain-altering ray that the the pink eight-legged cat built in Superman's lab, he turned Superman into the Jekyll Hyde, and he tried to stop you from killing him, Batman. Too bad I failed. And now he's going to scratch and kill uh, Nancy and Batman, except Superman has his brain back, and so he grabs the cat by the scruff of his neck and picks up Batman and uh, Van Z to safety. And so, so and, and then we get our epilogue. It says, sometime later, after Superman restores Candor in a new bottle, Superman has brainwashed the cat and sent it back to Zircon because cosmic rays must have caused it, must have caused it, to mutate into an intelligent, cunning being. And Batman says, but what brought you back to life? And... Uh, Superman says, my dead body cells couldn't hold the microwave beamers reducing effects and it spanned back to normal size, but bursting free of candor made them invulnerable, and since anything invulnerable can't die, I returned to life. Nature doesn't allow contradictions. And amazingly, Batman believes this. (laughs) He says, amazing, and I'm free of the awful guilt of executing you. Guess the only thing left to say is the king is dead. Long live the king, the end. Oh my god, what did I just read? (laughs) What did I read? Could you go over that explanation again in more detail? I'm not quite sure I've caught it any of the nine times I've tried to make sense of it. Okay, so they they shrunk down with the microwave beamer to go into Candor. Okay, and so he's dead because Candor okay. is under a red, a red, an artificial red sun, if I'm remembering right, right? So inside right. Candor, the Kryptonians don't have superpowers. But when he died, his body couldn't hold in the energy... From the microwave beamer, so he grew giant again, and when he grew giant, he expanded back into outside of the red sun, the artificial red sun, back into under Earth's yellow sun, which caused him to spontaneously come back from the dead. Because you can't kill something that's invulnerable. Except if it's right. already dead. But no, if it's invulnerable, by definition, it can't be dead, therefore he has to be alive. All I can say is, I have oh. the high ground. You can't win. <laughs> oh, my so gosh. This, uh, this, I'm, this come, so this all comes down to a dictionary definition. Yeah. That's, that's the I'm, I'm, re- I'm reminded. Okay. I'm Got reminded it. of, I don't know if you guys ever watched Futurama, uh, mm. but there's one episode of Futurama where bureaucrat Hermes gets his, bu- his bureaucratic rating uh, downgraded, and they have to go into the bureaucracy. And at the end, the chief bureaucrat says, Bureaucrat Hermes, you are technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. <laughs> and that, that's kind of what we got here. Now, just to give my origin story a little bit here, this was a comic that I found at um, one of my local books, local used bookstores. And I've got two of them very close by each other, actually, here in Greenville, South Carolina. And I got this was like two bucks at, at, at one called Mr. Uh, Mr. K's, which is a, a small chain. They've got a few locations in South Carolina. I think they've got some in Texas, some in the southeast. It was like two bucks. And I saw this cover, 
with Superman staring placidly while chained to a throne, wearing a crown, and Batman pointing a gun at him with the guy saying, execute King Superman. I said, okay, you got me. You got my $2. <laughs> good job. Good job, DC. You know, uh, good job on, uh, on, on getting me to buy this. And then I read it, and I, had, I got nothing. I, I got nothing. I understand that Bob Haney's whole thing is that he's supposed to, his stuff is kind of just crazy, and he was just kind of flying by the seat of his pants with it. But parts of this just make no sense. I mean, I understand my synopsis wasn't the greatest, but that's because I couldn't find a synopsis that gave the, the full blow-by-blow of what's <laughs> actually going on in this comic. Now, that having been said, the art by Dick Dillon is very nice. And I, it I really, is, it, yes. I mean, you, you, I mean, just flipping through this, this looks like a mid-70s DC, you know, World's Finest book. This mm-hmm. looks really good, but then you read the, it, and you're like, what am I reading? I, it just the, doesn't, it just, it just boggles the mind. First off, I thought it was nice that you brought a story that even though Dr. Bill, you know, is not on this episode... <laughs> Alvin is represented. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. I, Superman, I reprogrammed you. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I thought that was a nice touch, buddy. Yes. That was a nice. Touch. Well, I have I have a cat who behaves very close, similar to this, except he's also like dumb as a brick. You know, he's he's just, <laughs> he's, he's evil but stupid, so he's okay. <laughs> I did. You had the he, Otis of cats. Okay. Yes. You know, uh, uh, talking about the art. No, the leader of the Kandorian Council, mm-hmm. he does have some Mike Grell level facial hair. Yes, he oh, does. He does. Yes, the, but that <laughs> was a, that. That is an impressive beard mustache combo. Yes, especially how it curves up like tusks. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. I I love also how Superman just happens to have a spare bottle to put the city yeah. of Kandorian. <laughs> Says sometime later, after Superman restores Candor in a new bottle. Okay, well, you just grew and crushed it worse than Godzilla has ever stomped Tokyo. <laughs> How long did it take to restore this? He's like, I got this. It may, maybe maybe it's like uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali, and he goes into a time warp where he's got all the time he needs in order to fix it. I uh, guess. <laughs> The bottle's broken, so all the Kandorians suddenly have superpowers, and they just use super speed to restore everything. That's possible. I mean, wasn't that wasn't that basically? Uh, remember World of Krypton, World of New Krypton, from a couple of years, well, more like ten years ago now in DC, when all the crypto, all the Kandorians were released, and suddenly there was an army of Supermen on the on the Earth. They rounded up all of Superman's villains in a day, threw them all in the Phantom Zone, including poor poor Toy Man. <laughs> <laughs> screaming i don't belong in there but anyway um yeah like i said i mean this, this is you always see these kinds of covers when when you see like the clickbait articles or the listicles of a you know crazy d crazy dc comics from uh you know from the 60s or the 70s or whatever i i, I just had to buy it when i saw it and then i read it i was like yeah okay that you know that scene on the cover it pretty it kind of happens i mean not maybe in this exact way but I mean, Superman is the king of Kandor, and he is ordered, Batman is ordered to execute him. So it's like, well, okay, yeah. you, you gave me what you promised. <laughs> Do we assume that this is one of those stories? Because this happened at DC you know, regularly under, under certain you know, editorial reigns where they would commission the cover first. Oh, and they, I mean, is it possible? Well, that here, was, right, that they got the this. cover well, first me, and then me, gave well, it to was, Haney to attempt to... 
do well, something with it. Well, wasn't that typically uh, Julie Schwartz who did that? Schwartz would. Yeah, say, I, I, I don't think it was this late. Yeah, because the editor here is. Um, but boy, does it have that feel. Yeah, the 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 credited editor is Murray Boltonoff, and at this point, uh, Jeanette Kahn is actually the publisher. I want to say this was right around the time that 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 she took over as publisher of DC Comics. But because this this was Haney's first first issue back on the book, and I think he had done some earlier than this, but they uh, looking at the at Mike's Amazing World of Comics here at uh, DCIndexes.com, and uh, now Haney did the last did the previous one too, but Kurt Swan did the art on that one. So Haney and Dylan, I'm I'm jumping back a few here. So Haney's been doing the book for a while at this point with Dick Dylan. So I guess it's all or Kurt Swan. So I guess no, I guess. Uh, Jeanette Kahn was the newcomer at this point. So this book had been kind of doing this stuff for a while, apparently. Look at some yeah. of these covers. There's one where <laughs> a, giant, a giant hand is squeezing Superman so hard his head is popping off on World's Finest <laughs> 230, uh, 235. 236 has Superman about to play whack-a-mole with the Atom. Mm. So so that's cool. <laughs> but uh, And then the Metal Men apparently are in the previous one, it looks oh, like. Oh, nice. Uh, no, nice. just or it's just gold. I guess it's just gold oh, from the okay. Metal Men. But, um, <laughs> but again, all, all that notwithstanding, if, if you're going to read a Bob Haney World's Finest comic, you, you need to expect it to be a little, a little crazy and a little out there and a little trippy, and that's what this book was. So, no, the ending didn't make sense. And, and a lot of the story is kind of just, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. But I, Problem, I, a, lot of, a lot of the stuff at the beginning and the middle didn't make sense either. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, no, it didn't make sense, but it was a fun read. So <laughs> yeah, That is do, hard to argue with. Do with that what you will. <laughs> so. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fun read. Then the last page, it's like, whoa, that was a big left turn. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also I love the the very end where Superman is holding Batman and Van Z in his hand. He says, uh, and, "and and you Van Z, in your panic, forgot your superpowers." <laughs> you would think if he was panicking and running, he would be running at super speed, and Batman would be Cat Chow. <laughs> I don't need to outrun the Cat Batman, just you. <laughs> Also, I'd like to point out, uh, who says we can't be timely with uh, with Batman breaking into the Fortress of Solitude? I was immediately reminded of the Lego Batman movie. Uh, <laughs> no, not 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 quite the same thing goes down as happens in that film. For those of you who've seen it, but uh, um, yeah, so that this this was this was a, an odd book. I mean, like I said, I, I enjoyed it. I, I felt that. My money was well spent just to have this kind of unusual book. Because I'm not a. The thing is, I don't have a lot of issues of World's Finest. Um, I, I like Superman quite a bit, and I read Superman for quite a while and collected Superman for a while in the post-death era in the 90s when I was in uh, um, uh, junior high and high school. But this era is kind of a blind spot to me. I've, I've, I've read some here and there, but I don't own a lot of it. The most issues of World's Finest I own are from when the book was a dollar book. Because Hawkman was one of the backups at that point. That ah. was, uh, in between, at, after uh, uh, Hawkman and the Atom was canceled, one of the places where Hawkman cropped up uh, was World's Finest, along with uh, stories in Detective Comics and, and uh, Superman Family. So I, I haven't read a lot of these, so these, you always hear about these zany Haney books, you know, from <laughs> from various podcasters. And so, I, like I said, it was, it was a treat just to get to read this, and sure enough, that cover sucked me in and I bought it. So I'm, I'm, I'm playing by their <laughs> rules, man. So, <laughs> so uh, any, any other thoughts on uh, World's Finest 240? Want to get into, into ratings? I think we can get into ratings. 
All right. Well, since it's my book, I will I will go ahead. The cover, as I said, I saw the cover and I bought it. So the cover gets an A. Uh, I've hmm. seen this one referenced before on again of crazies, uh, you know, DC covers of the era. Uh, but you know, to me, a a cover's job is to get you to buy the comic, and this would get me to buy the comic because it's so strange and so un- bizarre. The whole setup of Superman as a king chained to his throne and Batman going to shoot him. But then the figures themselves look quite nice. I, I, I mm-hmm. can almost, um, uh, and, and I, I have always liked the DC trade dress where they had the banner across the top with the, the line of DC superstars uh, circle right in the middle. Um, since I got into the DC's Bronze Age uh, after I got out of college, I've really, I've always liked that trade dress. So I can almost forgive the plain background, although it is a gradient at least. Right. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, the cover to me gets an A. The the art on the interior. You're grading the cover on a pass fail basis. Yes. <laughs> well, you did know, I, did I, it make me want to buy it? Did it make yes me want to no? buy it? But that was the point of the cover, though. You <laughs> exactly, know that that was exactly. in, in this case with these crazy stories. It's like, well, they, did did we get them with the cover? Yes. Then we got their uh, thirty cents here. So uh, the interior art, I said, by which is uh, Dylan and Cowan. I, I really like it. Like I said, it's a very kind of classic looking. Uh, DC book. There's some great poses. We get some uh, some real dynamic shots. Some uh, some great automatopoeia here and there, which is which is always a nice touch, especially in a in a superhero book. Uh, we get you know, all sorts of this crazy stuff. We get the giant um, uh, handy helper. We get the big cat. We get the statues of uh, Lara and Zor-El. There's a, the, a giant cruise ship in the in the fortress. You know, there's, there's the the alpha ape who literally appears for only one page. You know, there, there's all sorts of stuff. So the art to me gets, I, I really like, I'm giving the art a, a B plus. I, I think Dylan does a really good job with this and it really looks like a, like a DC book should story. I'm tempted to give it an I because I don't, I don't know that this makes a whole lot of sense, <clears throat> but I, I can't do that. That's kind of a cop out. So, you know, there, there are parts of the story that I, I really like and I think are, are, you know, intriguing, the, pretty much the the most of the entire first chapter with Superman acting uh, heartless and cold is it doesn't make a lot of sense overall in the story, but it's very intriguing when you read it. Uh, so uh, I and and there's some neat stuff of Superman or Batman breaking into the fortress and all this. So I, I'm going to give the the story just a C and just say it's a typical Bob Haney type of story. Your mileage may vary. It's either great or insane or somewhere in the middle or perhaps both. Um, at the same time. So overall, I guess that averages out to uh, a B, uh, a B. So this this book, I give a B overall. So what do you think, guys? Well, I <clears throat> I like the cover. Uh, the cover, the only issue I have is, you know, the, the background is a little plain. It's not that bad. But Superman just kind of sitting there, while Batman, who apparently is really into using this gun on him, yeah. is about to sh- blow him away. He's just, okay, I guess I'll just sit here. It's, it's like he's you know, t- tuned in to his favorite TV program, and he will not miss it for anything. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm going to give, I'm going to give the cover a B plus. You know, it's, it's my, my preferred style, Batman, the post Adams, Aparo Batman. So I, I like that. Superman is classic silver bronze age Superman. So yeah, I, I I like that. Uh, interior art, same thing. It's it's classic of the time period. It's uh, it's Bronze Age, so it is 
Bronze Age forward is kind of my preferred art style, especially where Batman is concerned. Superman, I prefer uh, post-burn, you know, John, the reboot and beyond, but it's I still, I don't mind it. Looks very good. Uh, I like how Van Z has the triangular emblem uh, of the S shield, so he's he's obviously distinct, even though he looks like he's in a carbon copy of Superman's uniform. Uh, and you know, as as the professor said, that that facial hair on the the head of the Science Council that is yeah. just spot on. That is worth <laughs> at least half a letter. Yes. On the <laughs> uh, so and. and yeah, I, I give the I give the interior art a B plus as well. Now the story. Oh, <laughs> the story. Well, when it's Bob Haney, you do kind of expect a certain level of, of absurdity. Let's just put it that way. But when when you have Batman taking cues from Red Brown into how to store a hang glider. <laughs> And any any ending of a book that that makes me go back and say, "What the heck are you talking about?" Uh, I mean, it, it's this is a bit far even for Haney, so I'm gonna have to say that <laughs> I, I'm gonna give it a C minus on that. So I guess that would it would average out to like a B book. Yeah, yeah. For me, obviously, the cover is is the highlight of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not let's, no bones about it. It's dramatic. It's attention gathering. It it definitely wants to make you open it up and see what the story is, and it is representative of what goes on inside the story. Uh, yeah, Superman's look is a little doofy. Uh, yeah, B plus. I mean, it's very good. Inside art, it's standard for the era. Uh, uh, better than average. I thought the cat looked good. I thought the beard looked great. So that's a B. The story. <laughs> it's dramatic. There's a mystery there. But, you know, there's the wacky, fun sort of Bob Haniness. But this, for me, leans more to the just doesn't make any sense yeah. side of Bob Haney. There are holes, too many holes, too many unanswered questions. And the questions that are answered, eh, I'm not so sure. Uh, I I would like to mark it down lower, but it is Bob Haney. So there is a Bob Haney curve, but I do have to go C minus. And in my grading scale, the story does weight a little higher, so it does work out to a B minus. But it's memorable. That's the other thing. I'm saying I'm going to be thinking about this story for quite some time. That's the other side of it. Yeah, this is uh, if if either of you guys read the website TV Tropes, they have a term they use called fridge logic, where you accept something as making sense in a movie or a TV show, but then later that night when you're standing in front of the refrigerator, something (laughs) clicks your head like, wait a minute, wait no, (laughs) no. The the one the the famous moment of that I had was for the movie Battleship, which I, I, you know, I watched it and I enjoyed it. I said, okay, fine, it's, it's a take on Battleship, it's just an action movie based on a board game. And then I'm standing at the refrigerator and said, wait a minute, there were five ships on either side of that fight. It's just <laughs> like Battleship. Wow! <laughs> Blew my mind. Blew my mind. I should have put on a helmet. Also, I'd also like to point out um, 
for our fans of long play, we do get a print ad in here for the Rolling Stones Black and Blue on <laughs> Rolling Stones Records and Tapes with a uh, a uh, in-house. I don't know who drew this. It's not. It doesn't say, but the uh, DC Comics style art of the Rolling Stones, which is pretty neat to uh, promote the album Black and Blue, which I think is pretty cool. And uh, just one other thing, I know we've got a lot of fans of the uh, limited collector's edition, the large treasury size comics, as mm-hmm. a a nice um, house ad here for both Superman and the Legion of Superheroes, which is uh, special edition C49, and the greatest race of all time, Superman versus the Flash, nice. limited collector's edition C48. I, that is one I would really like to own. I have the trade paperback, which collects, I think there's like five or six different Superman versus the Flash mm. races. But and, and it's cool to have the story, but that's one of those ones that I'd like to have on the big oversized treasury paper. That would just be that would just be cool to be able to pour over the, the art on the large scale like that. Oh yeah. So And I like the uh you know, the the back cover is the ad for the green machine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is what the big wheel wishes it were. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah big wheel looks at this longingly. Yeah, anything you, any kind of bike that you steer from the back is going to be interesting. <laughs> well, you know what's odd is that my son has a, it's a, I just called it like a Razor 360 or something. It's a bike that looks a lot like this. It's <laughs> got, it doesn't have the racing tires in the back. It's got casters, so you can spin it around real easy. Oh wow! So what they like to do is launch themselves down the driveway and then get into the street and spin a 360. You know. <laughs> Does your wife know? Your yeah, son has the, this? Um, yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm, a, I'm I'm down there. I keep watch for traffic. That's my job. I I stand at the mailbox and yell <laughs> curb every time a car comes. So, <laughs> you know. game off. It's game on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the green machine. That's for, I, I love it specifically. This marketing would never fly nowadays for guys. Eight, nine, ten years old who really know how to ride. You couldn't you couldn't just market it only to guys of that age. You couldn't even market it just to guys. Right. That's not allowed. <laughs> now you can market something just to girls, but never just to guys. That that doesn't work. You know. <laughs> now I'm gonna get letters, so please send all correspondence to uh what is it? Uh, Back to the bins uh, at gmail.com. Yeah. Yeah. Technically speaking, Paul Spataro will get letters about you. So that's actually different. That's okay, in my yeah. book. <laughs> All right, so shall we move along to are, our final are issue? We, are we ready? Ready! I think this, th- this might be the highlight of the night. <laughs> the Destructor, born of fury, sworn to vengeance. This is Destructor, number one. And I... I I'm going to say it that way. Destructor. Destructor. (laughs) This is from Atlas Comics. More about them later. Cover dated February 1975 at the magic cover price of 25 cents. Oh, yeah. I do have to give my good friend Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary a shout out because he sent me this comic uh, last fall. And on the cover, we have Larry Lieber. Is it? We don't have Larry Lieber. We have yes. Larry Lieber and Wally Wood drawing <laughs> the instructor. It's a bold new direction of putting Larry Lieber on the cover. <laughs> hey guys, he was, buy the he, comic. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm not Stanley, but sort of. <laughs> I'm close. I'm lovable, Larry. Come on, guys. 
We're working really hard over here. You know the kind of page rates we're paying here at Atlas? <laughs> what do we have? You know, if you'd let me go first, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> that, this is how the magic happens, Professor. We've got the blue and red clad dude busting through a wall right at us while bad guys are shooting right at him. The Birth of a Hero was written by Archie Goodwin with art by, are you ready, Steve Ditko and Wally Wood. You've got talent on this thing. Mm-hmm. South of the great urban glut that is New York City, Jersey City, Newark, and Elizabeth lies Harbor Town. Smaller than these better-known neighbors, it's still torn by much of the same ills and social decay. It is still ravaged by the same kind of professional corruptors like Max Raven. Now, Jay Hunter is a young kid doing deliveries for professional corruptor Max Raven. But one day, he sees more than he should. Little punk's got big eyes, but new talent can always be replaced. Jay heads over to his father's super science lab, where the old man is working on a serum that will give man the full freedom of his senses. All he needs now is a human subject. But Jay doesn't believe his dad's crazy notions. He's been hearing this talk since he was in diapers. Suddenly, mobsters burst into the lab and shoot up the place, gravely wounding both Jay and his dad. To save his son, the dying father pours his super serum down his son's throat. Darkness, deep and terrible, takes Jay Hunter. The authorities arrive, assuming both of them are dead, but the kid's alive. It's not possible. The bullets that were fired into Jay's body, his body rejects those bullets and the wounds heal themselves. Word gets out that Jay is alive, making him the mob's number one target. He slips out of the hospital and tries to find a safe place to crash, but nobody really likes him, seeing as he shakes down his classmates on a regular basis. The only person who can help Jay Hunter now is Jay Hunter. Realizing that he has powers from his dad's serum, he decides to do some good. Fortunately, he finds a costume that Pop had created, and he becomes the one-man mob buster, the Destructor. He systematically takes on Max Raven's operations, torching his warehouse, even staying in the man's apartment while he's hiding out. So Raven calls in the Slaymaster, a name whispered through the underworld. When all else fails, he is called the Assassin Elite, the ultimate professional killer, whom we see perform a job somewhere in my neck of the woods in the quiet of rural Ohio. A week later, Slaymaster arrives in New Jersey while Destructor continues to mourn his father's death. You should have lived instead of me, Pop, but I can still bring down the kind of human lice who killed you. Fortunately for our story, one of Max Raven's companies is a giant novelty company called the Giant Novelty Company. 
it, hey, it does what it says on the tip. <laughs> <laughs> and even though Destructor knows it's a perfect place for a trap, he heads there for the showdown with Slaymaster. And with some excellent leaping and dodging and reflexing, the two figures lock in desperate battle. And shortly after, at Max Raven's headquarters, the assassin walks in victorious. But then the Slay Master removes his mask and coat, and it's Destructor! Not your hired killer, Raven. He's become part of the giant novelty company's inventory, till the coroner picks him up. And as Jay is about to unmask, giving Raven a final surprise, the man's own henchmen gun him down. Can't trust a mobster these days. One of them has made a deal with the boys up north to take over. But just before Raven dies, Hunter does unmask himself, and the gangster can't believe he was finished by one punk alone. It just can't. And then a new day dawns, grim and bleak, and at his father's grave, Jay Hunter proclaims that even though his father has been avenged, he's going on. I'm not quitting with Raven, Pop. He's not the end. He's the beginning. I swear it. The end. Well, that was more of a straightforward superhero tale than we had in the other two. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, you know, but well, you know what? What struck me is uh, about this is that um, for again, first off, the murderer's row of talent: Archie Goodwin, Steve Ditko, and Wally Wood. It's like good oh, gravy. Man. Wow! How I mean, have we were... not? How have we not heard of this comic already? You know exactly. And uh, and but but what I liked about this was that it, you know, Atlas was always their whole thing was they were going to try and do something different. They were going to do the same types of stories. We're going to do superhero stories. We're going to do barbarian stories. We're going to do war stories. We're going to do police stories. But they're going to do them a little different. And this mm. totally fits that because, you know, the idea of the kid getting superpowers with great power comes great responsibility, being drawn by Steve Ditko. I think we all know what that is. Yes, yes. But this is, this is a lot of ways, you know what this kind of reminds me of? This is almost like if, let's say Flash Thompson, instead of just being a bully, was a thug and a hoodlum. And then, right. Fla and then Flash Thompson gets superpowers. So this is trying to be something different while still fitting kind of into that, hey, we're going to try and take a bite out of Marvel. That's what Atlas's whole like reason for existence really was in some ways. <laughs> so yeah, this was this was a this this was a very I think a very well done Bronze Age book that had this been at Marvel or DC instead of Atlas, this might have ran for for a while. Yeah, this this version of Atlas Atlas Seaboard existed for less than a year mm -hmm. in 1975 this title lasted four issues one of the um, long longest running one of the few atlas titles <laughs> to make it to four issues all series that's, that's probably true a, a that's lot, probably a, true a lot of them were canceled at three or earlier so mm -hmm. i think there was this one and iron jaw and maybe one or two others that made it to four issues mm -hmm. and but uh, if you look yeah. they you know there there is a you know a sort of the Equivalent of the bullpen bulletins, mm -hmm. you know, talking about what they're uh, what they're doing, and you, again, you, you scroll down that list. Now, this one has the top level A talent, but you've got Michael Fleischer, Mike Sikowski, mm -hmm. uh, Ernie Cologne, uh, Larry Hama, Klaus Jansen, Pat Broderick. Mm -hmm. You've got 
legitimate talent but working to, on these working on these guys' books. If you take yeah. a look take a look in the in the, the second column there, right in the middle, Howie Chaken. That's Howard <laughs> Howard Chaken's right. book, The Scorpion, which mm-hmm. uh, I if you can find the Scorpion number one, buy it. It is fantastic. But the Scorpion is the prototype for who would become Dominic Fortune. Who mm-hmm. itself is kind of the prototype for every hero Howard Chaykin ever created when you get right down to it. Ah, okay. <laughs> you know the, the the you know the 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 cool guy with the the gun and the babe and all that. I mean that that, that they were doing some interesting stuff. They just their business was so poorly run that you know it's like you read books like this and I and I brought a couple of Atlas comics a couple of months ago. I did mm-hmm. Target right. number one, the most you know schizophrenic comic I've ever uh, comic series I've ever seen with each. Wasn't issue. that was that T A R G I T T? Yes, it was. <laughs> of on. course it was. Get on target, but uh, you know, tar- I, I, I brought Target to the show. I brought uh, Weird Suspense featuring the Tarantula. I know they, uh, Doctor Bill and, and producer Paul did the Brute. So we've covered. I know uh, they mm-hmm. did. Uh, Paul and uh, Scott Gardner did Iron Jaw. So we brought a, a, quite a right. bit of Atlas stuff here, and they, they they did some good stuff amid, but they just weren't around. They're just such a strange little footnote in comics history. But uh, taken on its own. I really enjoyed this individual issue. I think Ditko's art looks is great. I mean, I've always been a fan of, of Ditko's art, but he's clearly channeling the same type of Spider-Man sort of vibe here. And uh, all of his, his teenagers and his uh, his gangsters and all that, they all look great. The action is just frantic. And, you know, there, there's always something going on on the page. And the even though the layouts are just normal panels, just the, the storytelling and the art is fantastic. Um, there, there's always there, the one. The one that uh, I, I really like is um, what page is this on? It's uh, it's right when um, it's, it's right in the middle of the book. It's page 13 of the uh, of the the copy we're reading, right in the middle where the destructor just wallops a dude with a wooden chair. It, yes. It's such a perfect sort, and then lights it all on fire because <laughs> burn it with fire nuke it from orbit is the only way to be sure but that is such a steve ditko sort of panel the the way that the the chair is swinging and the we see the 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 guy flying out of the panel backwards and all that and the the sound the onomatopoeia of will rack right over him really well done Cause, really well yeah because what yeah, so what you have in the panel is he's going one direction the guys he's hit are going another direction the chair is going another direction Mm-hmm. And it all works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I, when I first read this, it because I've been going back and reading early Marvel stuff, so I'm still reading the Lee Ditko Spider-Man issues. It didn't look like Ditko art because it's not super angular like his stuff in the '60s was. Mm-hmm. It that said though, it is brilliant stuff. It is. Super well done. The, the combination of Ditko and Wally Wood on this is just stupendous, mm-hmm. uh, and it it looks it looks great. It's it's almost I would almost put it like halfway between Ditko and Ramita Spider Man stuff because it's got that same energy. Uh, the Destructor is every time I say that I want to sound like like Megatron. Constructicon Swarm Destructor, um, but it—he's—he's it, it, he's bigger. You know, he's—he's he's not uh, an acrobat like Spider-Man was. He's more—he's more towards Captain America, more towards yeah. a built-out guy 
but it it's really good. I I love the the Spider-Man Batman reveal on the last page mm-hmm. right before the you know the mobster dies, he pulls his mask off like he he's you know going uh explain to the the robber or Joe Chill, mm-hmm. you know, I you created me mm-hmm. and 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 of course he now has seen his face so he has to die. Right, yes. <laughs> it caused comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, those looks but but those looks of terror. Yeah. That that our bad guy has in those last couple panels. It's just terrific. Yep. And then you get some of the op art stuff like um the um um I got on page fourteen when you see the we see kind of the montage of the destructor and his it it's it's we okay. see the his his dad and the kind of weird shapes in the background and the stuff going on in his mind and he feels you, know, you can see like bats and parts of other animals and stuff and then yeah that, that's really that's Doctor Strange yeah. right there <laughs> and then there's one earlier which is a bit more which is more still a Ditko thing but more of a Ditko Spider Man. On, on page seven, where we get again that the whole like top two thirds of it is a montage of scenes of him mm. of his dad talking to him and him telling his dad it just takes bread pops lots and lots of bread and seeing Raven laughing at him and the money flying everywhere and the guns firing and the skull so it, it's it's a it's a well laid out well done book and, and it is and not to not to discount the uh, contributions of Archie Goodwin. Because again, if, if I'm, I mean, I'm read. I I had not read. I've, I've read said I've read a fair amount of Atlas. I'd never read Destructor. I want to get the rest of this now after reading this. This this is a story mm-hmm. I would like to see how this continues. It's it's a this is a sort of book I would almost have expected to see this type of story in the '90s. This is a, he's an anti-hero. You know, he's a he's a right. bad dude who gets powers and decides to get revenge. But you know what? Maybe uh, since I have these powers, I could do I could work my badness on other bad dudes. Yeah, and it, he is he is not afraid to kill either. Yeah, very you know, much Slay, so, yeah. Slay Master. Hey, yeah, the the coroner's going to pick him up. Yeah, right. You know, so that's a that's a further than Marvel or DC wanted to go at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the Punisher like was it. using rubber bullets at this point, wasn't he? Yeah, so I, I I I like when he tries to crash with his buddies, mm-hmm. but they're not his buddies because he's been he's been doing the local junior, junior mobster thug thing on everybody, and and you can tell it's the seventies because check out what uh, Miss Miss Thing is wearing in that panel right there. Oh, the uh, the tied up <laughs> yeah shirt yeah it's both you notice how it's both yes the high school chick and the the mall. Uh, that yeah. Slaymaster goes after. Yeah, they got yeah. the, the hip huggers and the tied up shirt. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, come on, get with it. It's the seventies, guys. You know. <laughs> but then, he, but then he crashes at the bad guy's place. Yeah, because he knows he's in hiding. That is genius. And he's sitting, yes. he's on the couch like a boss <laughs> <laughs> with chips and a drink it's like yeah i'm getting chips i'm getting crumbs all over your couch man and you can't and, do nothing and, about it <laughs> and i'm watching the bad guys big 13 inch tv <laughs> <laughs> all four channels <laughs> including pbs uh you know and, and it was great just and and you know again with with doctor strange coming out last year there's been a lot of it, it's funny because as comic fans, we we know, generally speaking, comic fans of a certain age and, and interest in certain stories, we, we take certain things kind of for granted. 
One of those is that, oh yeah, Steve Ditko is a recluse, and and you're not going to get an interview with him, and you're not he's not going to come talk to you, he's not going to do a puff piece in Entertainment Weekly to hype the new Doctor Strange movie. It's just not going to happen. But mm. to, to some people, this is news. You know, uh, there was an article, I forget, <laughs> I forget what, um, what was it, in Collider or, or one of those sites online that said, the, the headline was, the creator of Doctor Strange will not see you now. And, <laughs> you know, so that it's, so, but, but because of Ditko's got this kind of mystique about him, it's always fun for me to see new, new art, new to me art from Steve Ditko. And kind of hand sure. in hand with that, right around the time that uh, the professor that you, you sent this out for us, there was a article on Newsarama, and it was a, a, one of their year-ending articles, and it was a hundred little-known facts about comic books. And it was, you know, some of it I knew, some of it was kind of just trivia. But one of them was a story about Steve Ditko that I didn't know, but it's absolutely fantastic. And the story goes that in the early days of Valiant Comics, when Ditko actually did some work for Valiant, some of their pre-superhero, pre-Valiant Universe stuff, he did some work for them. Because uh, Jim Shooter and um, and uh, Bob Layton would basically call in anybody they could to come help. You know, hey, can you come and do some pages for us? Can you do a book for us? We'll get you page rate or whatever. And so the story goes that um, one day when Ditko came by the Valiant bullpen to work on some stuff, Marie Lapham, who is the wife of artist David Lapham, who you might know from uh, uh, Stray Bullets and uh, Murder Me Dead, and he does a lot of that kind of hard-boiled stuff, she would, uh, Marie Lapham would always pray the, the proper lady with Ditko because he was, you know, he was an older guy from the old days of comics and stuff. And so the story goes that one day he showed up and she greeted him. Hello, Mr. Ditko, can I get you a cup of coffee? And uh, Steve Ditko stared back at her and said, no, production before consumption. <laughs> and so he sat down, did a whole page, <laughs> got up, handed his production and said, I'll take that cup of coffee now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's now like that's work ethic. That's yeah, that, but you think okay, it's like yes, you tell me Steve Ditko did that, I totally believe it. You know, that's, <laughs> I absolutely and 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 you can tell that Ditko didn't write this book because you've got a guy who's a criminal becoming a hero, and you know Steve Ditko wouldn't allow that, right? You know, A is A. You know, so not to get all you know, <laughs> right, uh, right. which was a great bit on Justice League Unlimited. That the question actually says that it's like can, that's a little on the nose, guys, isn't it? But it was it was perfect. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, like I uh, said, that everything kind of comes together in, in this book, and it's a it's a good example of the kind of stuff that that Atlas was doing, but they they just couldn't sell it, and and you know you get. And, and Professor, I'll, I'll let you talk about this because you said you want to talk a bit about Atlas. But something that you see with them is they do the the uh, the third issue switch, where they would get the sales figures in for the first issue and they weren't as good as they wanted, so they changed the story around. Uh, that was how uh, Target went from a cop on the edge book <laughs> right. to a right. guy wearing a costume looking like Bullseye by the third issue. So, <laughs> I, I, I think that that's similar to uh, Iron Jaw had a similar. Mm-hmm. My understanding, uh, metamorphosis. Yes. <laughs> early in their run, but of course, everything is early in their run. Yeah, the, the Scorpion does the same thing. He goes from being, you know, the Howard Chaykin, hard-boiled, you know, uh, cool guy with a gun and a girl on his arm to being a Spider-Man ripoff by issue three, with Howard Chaykin mm -hmm. not involved at all on his own creation. But just the, you know, the weirdness of, you know, Atlas originally being... You know, an, a name used by the company that would eventually become Marvel. Mm -hmm. Right. And then this version of it being run by Larry Lieber. 
just a, there's and, just something weird going on there. I guess I don't know if Stan is in L.A. at this point. I guess this sort of well, this, by seventy four, seventy five. Well, so this, yeah, this was what Martin Goodman's son or whatever, wasn't it? That was right. doing this, and they were so they 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 had the rights to the name Atlas, and they wanted mm-hmm. to they wanted to take out Marvel. That was kind of yeah. their and they were going and they were poaching talent. Even they were. Yeah, I, got, I won't, right. You you can tell that just look at the back cover on this Atlas Comics, the new, new house, house of, of ideas. ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but even if you read the untold story of Marvel Comics, which is a, a book that I'd recommend, they talk about the fact that they were they were basically just going to people in Marvel and saying, "Look, we'll we'll pay we'll double your rate," or just luring them over with page rates to get them over there because they needed something to get people to come into a startup. Because we're still in the days of newsstand distribution here. Where, you know, startup, it wasn't like it is now, where a new third party starts up and they get, you know, they get an article on Newsarama and they get an interview on CBR and they're on Bleeding Cool and Reddit and all this other stuff. Now it was, okay, well, if if somebody's not, if if they're not buying it off the stands, it doesn't exist. So they had to do whatever, they were doing whatever they could to get people to to come in and see their, to buy their stuff. So, hey, I mean, more power to them. It, It didn't work out, but it was a... It, it was it was a heck of a ride while it lasted with some of these books. Yeah, and in that on that back cover, you've got your muck monster. Mm-hmm. You've got your you've got your uh, Native American character. You've got your gunslinger character. You've got your Vampirella knockoff. Yep. You've got your Conan and your Tarzan knockoffs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you've got you've got, uh, a, you've got your spaceman hero there. You got mm-hmm. your, all sorts of stuff. Yep. And 20, that, 21, 21 action-packed, full-color comics. And they also did a series of black-and-white magazines also. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. thrilling adventure stories. You can fi- if, you, if you can find either of the two issues of that, I'd recommend them both. Thrilling Adventure Stories number two is a fantastic magazine. It is very hard to find. Some of these, the later, and again, air quotes up to the microphone, later, Atlas books, are harder to find because the print runs by this point were just so small, you know. Right, right. You're not, you're not gonna just run on down to you know Bob's Comics and find them. Well, no, no offense to Bob or his comic <laughs> shop, but um, you know. Uh, so yeah, it's yeah they, they they clearly. I mean, their original logo even looked just like the Marvel Comics logo, except it was an A. You know. <laughs> so and uh, and and I've plugged this site before, but I'll I'll plug it again if you want to learn about Atlas Comics, atlasarchives.com is a great resource for finding out about both the uh, original run of Atlas Seaboard and then in 2009 or so, they did a very short run, short-lived run of uh, of rebooting some of their originals, the Grim Ghost, the Phoenix, and Wolf, which lasted for a few months, uh, didn't really make much of an impact. Those characters are still out there. They're not. I think a lot of this was done just to kind of reassert uh, ownership and all that of some of these original right. characters. But right. they're still out there. You'll find them every now and again. You know these uh, some of these. I think uh, I've got I've got I think two or three in the quarter bin database. I know I've got a police action. Mm-hmm. And I think I've got a savage combat. Yep. I'm looking at Sergeant Striker and his Death Squad. That name sounds familiar. Yep. But I think, you know, the only things I've ever found cheap were pretty beat up. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're you're finding reading copies at best. Well, you know, what's funny is that um, uh, something Scott Gardner has talked about numerous times on this show, and it's absolutely 100% correct. So I want to put Scott over with that because he is absolutely (laughs) dead on with this. 
You know, ever know that there's a book that you need for whatever reason? Maybe it's the last one of a run, or it's some it fits into something that you need, and it shouldn't be expensive, but you can't find it anywhere. Right. <laughs> and you're and you're and you're finally like, fine. I'll just buy it off eBay. You're like, I don't want to spend that money on this. I don't want to do it. Well, that was me with the Scorpion number one because <laughs> I couldn't right. find it anywhere, and I was getting so annoyed. It's like, I don't want to spend 10 bucks on this on eBay, but I really want to get this comic. And I, and I, I had resigned myself that I was going to do it, and sure enough, I was on a business trip to Alabama, and I drove, took a ride up one night to Huntsville, and there was a comic shop in Huntsville called The Deep. I'm not sure if they're still there, but they were there as of a couple of years ago. And The Deep had, Professor, you would like this place, because they had a tons and tons of boxes under the tables. And in the boxes, depending on... That's where, where the good stuff is. Yeah. Well, depending, <laughs> depending on where the, they, they had uh, on, the, on, the, on the bags in the, on the comics we're in, they either had a piece of tape on the top, on the right, or on the left. And depending which side it was, they were either a dollar, 50 cents, or 25 cents. Nice. Wow. I like that system. So out of, there, out of those bins, I pulled the Scorpion number one. For, fi- <laughs> oh, for, wow. for, for 50 cents. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Jackpot. Up yours, eBay. I'm going. I'm going to go read this, and sure enough, I went and I read that at dinner that night while eating sushi, uh, while on a business trip in in Alabama, because that's how I roll. But anyway, um, so yeah, so you because you, when I think sushi, I think Alabama. Well, to be fair, we're we are in, like I said, we're we're near Huntsville, so we are kind of near the coast. Okay, but um, I'll, I'll give you that one. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I say that, but I don't know much about, we're, we're near the, we're near the river. I don't know if that counts as the coast, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, that this, uh, again, apologies to any listeners in Alabama. I, I, I go there every now and again for work, but I, I really don't get to explore much other than the job site. That's, that's how things go. But the, the point is, is that you can find these Atlas books if you look for them, but some of them, you're going to have to pay that money if you really want to be a completist and, you know, it's like, mm, are they really worth it? That's the question you got to ask on some of these. Like Tiger Man, mm, maybe not. You know, no. Scorpion, mm, yeah. Destructor, yeah. I'm willing probably to do that one. <laughs> well, let me go ahead and give this give this thing a grade. All right. Uh, the cover, even though it does not actually feature Lieber and Wood, it's just simply drawn by them. Still, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> I like the perspective. You've got the gunfire coming at him. He's coming right at you. You got people at different depths, and you've got different faces. To me, that's a that's a B plus. Very good, very good cover. Uh, the inside art, you know, Ditko and Wood, the Dream Team, they are capable of providing A level art, and for the most part, that's what they do here. It's dynamic. It's energetic. I think you know. Uh, like Luke, I am a Ditko guy, a, a big fan, and I, I appreciate what I've seen of Wally Wood's uh, work as well. The Destructor costume is a little bland, but other than that, it's excellent 1970s comic book art, so I'm going to give the art an A-. Uh, the story, it's a pretty standard origin story with some unique characteristics, especially considering... This guy's age, and as we said, the fact that he's sort of a tough guy, bad guy, certainly heading down that path. So the story, B minus, overall, A minus, B plus. 
Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm of similar opinion on the cover. Uh, it, the cover really makes. I, at first, I thought Wally Wood did the cover on his own because it really reminds me kind of of Wood. Some of Wood stuff he did at Marvel, especially like Daredevil. You know, especially in the pose of the Destructor, mm, right. reminds me of, of Wood stuff. Um, I lo- I really like the girl on the cover. Not not just the uh, you know she's got the uh, the uh, you know the uh, the good girl art going on up top there, mm. but she looks really good and she really does look like freaked out that the Slaymaster's Master's got her in a chokehold there. And I think her her uh, her pants are done really well to kind of show the the texture and stuff on the on the pants, which is nice. And as you said, everybody's got a different face. That one goon getting absolutely wrecked as he comes through the wall looks <laughs> great. The other guy kind of ducking for cover looks great. We do get Slaymaster, even though he's not called out. I think that's kind of a, a neat touch. I didn't even really put two and two together until after I read it, and I went back to cover and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, he's wearing his, it's a Slaymaster. So that I thought was cool. I I give the cover a B plus. This is, a again, a good cover. It would get me... Seeing a number one like this with a dynamic cover like that, it would be give me. If I'm flipping through the bins, I'd see it and say, oh, "I'm going to grab this. This looks interesting." The but the only thing I really don't really care for is the logo, which looks like somebody doodled it in math class. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say yeah, that that and the costume. Yeah. To the, me, or uh... the destructor, he destroys fractions. Yeah. I'll, I'll give your leg a compound fraction, man. But. Uh, <laughs> Moving on, the uh, the art inside, um, yeah, Ditko and Wood, even doing a, a, a really obscure character like this, the art's an A. I mean, this is this is good stuff all around. The character, the the mood, the storytelling, you know, some of the the op art touches with some of the uh, the uh, collages and montages and all that, good stuff. I, I really like the art. So art's a straight up A in my book. Uh, I'm just flipping through it again. It still looks great. Uh, the story. I said I, I liked that it was kind of like Spider-Man, but you know we had instead of likable nebbish nerd Peter Parker, we got a, a punk kid, who you know we who really should be the bad guy. So it's in in the sense it's it's more of a you know very it's a kind of a modernist type of story here for the mid 70s, and um, again he he's a bad dude and he he and sometimes sometimes you want that bad dude that works against the worst dudes you know. Um, so, um, you know, professor, many, many moons ago, we talked about Morbius over on the Quarterbin podcast. And mm, I said the same yes. thing is that mm-hmm. Morbius, whole shtick is that he's a monster that hunts down worse monsters. And, and that's, mm-hmm. and that's around the same time as this, you know, uh, obviously over in Marvel instead of at Atlas, but the idea that, you know, sometimes, sometimes you need to push the line a little bit. This is kind of that, that mid seventies, dirty, hairy death wish sort of approach to things a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's and it's it's different and it stands out. That that said, it, it it is still in a lot of ways with great power comes great responsibility. It's kind of a standard superhero origin. You could see this being, I don't know, like a TV movie kind of storyline for it, and swearing revenge at the father's mm-hmm. grave at the end. But I'm gonna give the the story a B. And overall, I guess that comes out to uh, probably an A minus. I think this is a this was a mm-hmm. good book. And if you if, if you can find this one, I'd, I'd recommend picking it up. Yeah, I I'm pretty much in agreement with you guys. I mean, the cover is good. It's it's very dynamic. It's uh, the exaggerated comic book poses. You know, no one's going to actually look like that falling backwards. But it's it's really well done. It's obviously all individuals. Uh, I like you said, Luke. I like how the the girl looks freaked out both by being in a chokehold and, oh, my God, that guy's firing a, a machine gun towards me. 
because mm-hmm. <laughs> of the 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 eye line for her. it's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mm-hmm. I've done better logos myself in elementary school, but you know. <laughs> At, to, and again, as a as a fairly common criticism, Atlas did not have the best logos. No, they did not. The, they, the, they did not. The cougar is equally as poor as the Destructor, <laughs> and as I said on a previous episode, the cougar is not what you think. It's not like a middle-aged superheroine out on the prowl. Not even after issue three? Not even after issue three. As cool, as cool as that would be, you know, issue four was planned to be the, you know, all buy one, get one free margaritas at TGI Fridays issue. But <laughs> unfortunately, so, yeah, never, I... never solicited. <laughs> hey, and both beings are the term. Mm. Oh. hey Uh... So yeah, I'll, I'll give the cover a B plus. It, it's it's got some negatives to it, but overall, it's it's really good. It it would catch my attention definitely. Uh, interior art, yeah, it's an A. It, it's it's really top notch stuff. You have like you guys said, the dream team working on it. Just going back through this, I do not need to read this comic to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So that that's A level mm-hmm. comic storytelling right there. Yeah, the plot, it's its the same thing we've seen before. Granted, there are a couple holes in here, like, wow, this kid is, uh, the bullets are just popping right out of him, but no one thinks he's the superhero. <laughs> it, it, that's a little hard for me to swallow, Uh but otherwise, it, it's, it got a few nice twists on, on things. I especially like how they acknowledge this guy has no idea what his powers are. Mm-hmm. He's just finding it out as th- as things go along, and then he has to course correct sometimes. Like, oh, yo, yes, I can find him by feeling the vibrations, but if I'm moving, I can't feel the vibrations. Oh, he moved. I'm about to get shot. Yeah, it, it's it's good, but I'll, I'll say it's a B on, on the plot. So I, I guess that that averages out to like B plus A minus yeah. overall. I think we're all pretty much on point with all of our books. I think we were all it wasn't too many I think we all kind of kinda of came to the same opinions on a lot of these books tonight. Yeah. Which I guess happens sure. sometimes when you get three in- Just because we're assistant editors yeah. doesn't mean we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on, you guys. I was, all I was going to say is when you get three, you know, well-read, intelligent, good-looking, you know, uh, guys together on a podcast, I mean, uh, it's inevitable that their opinions might run together sometimes, you know, it just, and it also happens when you get guys like us on a show, too. So hey, like, wait a minute. <laughs> you were talking about next episode yeah. or last episode? Well, you know, it's, uh, I'll, I'll never forget one, um, I, I sent a, I sent a, a letter into uh, I think it was Comics Monthly Monday, a long time ago, and I said something about... Uh, the Shogun Warriors comic, and I said, and I said, if you were listening to Earth Destruction Directive, the well-informed and the well-informed and uh, and good-looking host of that show, and Scott goes, what? They got a new host over there? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even skip a beat. It's like, thank you, Scott. I deserve that. But um, yeah, but like I said, you know, it, it sometimes you get that where you know the books are other quality that they are, and we come to there are certain things like the the world's finest. Obviously, the art was was gonna be popular with this crowd and the story is bananas you know and and again with this crowd you put steve ditko and wally wood on a book it's gonna look pretty darn good you know so 
sometimes agreeing is not so bad. <laughs> no, it's it's not like we didn't have a decent discussion on the mm-hmm. topics either. It's not like, oh, this is great, next. <laughs> no. That was really cool, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the time yeah. when B.A. Had, had green teeth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't so good. <laughs> Reminds me of a Charlie Daniels song. Yeah. Hey, you know. <laughs> you know that. You know, I was uh, my wife and I. We were we were out uh, the other night, and uh, I say the other night. This was a couple of months ago, and the station it's playing all the country songs that we used to listen to in college, right? Okay. And Alan Jackson and Tim McGraw and all this, and it says, <laughs> and the the the, uh, the little bumper comes on. It's like retro country, and I'm like, oh okay. I said, <laughs> so I said, I go, wait a minute. If this is retro country, what about when I'm listening to like Waylon or Hank Jr.? What does that qualify as? And and my wife's like Jurassic country, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah. <laughs> and so I posed the same question to Chris Honeywell, and he said, "Actual country music is that what you'd call that?" <laughs> so sometimes that's be, what I'm thinking. Yeah. So at this point, I'm thinking. I mean, I'm glad that the network MeTV yeah is showing shows that I remember, but uh oh, <laughs> MeTV yeah. is showing shows I remember. Well, you know, Uh-oh. well, you know what's funny is that MeTV shows shows that I remember from reruns when I was a kid. Mm, so mm-hmm. you know, so you, you can you can fall back on that and, and you know have at least some plausible deniability until they meet your daughter and do the math and figure. Wait a minute, no, you're not. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's like grooving out to the 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 song that you really really love and this is and welcome to the easy listening station it's like, no! okay <laughs> don't, i'm that person it's like don't laugh i was once like you <laughs> yeah it's like when i'm trying to pick a piece of white dog hair off my arm and realize no that's attached yeah <laughs> you you want to you want to know I, i'm this one's just a shout out to all the guys that are out there you know middle-aged and older as a a coworker who was fresh out of college, called me. I'm like, really? Really? But anyway, um, you know you know what's a bad sign is when you're you're leaning in close to the mirror trying to look at the top of your head to see how much hair you're losing, and you start noticing all the gray hairs. It's like, really? <laughs> one or the other, guys. One or the other, please. If you're going to fall uh, out, every... you can take the gray with you. <laughs> every time I get my hair cut, a little on the sides, I get a little more Reed Richards on the sides. <laughs> For many reasons, I do not approve of that. <laughs> I'd like to think it's Hal Jordan, but I know. Yeah, you're more it's Reed, Reed Richards. Richards. Well, would you know what, though? Hey, Reed did have the smoking hot wife, so. Well, you know, we have that in common. We got that going on, so. <laughs> I, I think I look more like Swamp Thing, which makes my wife Adrienne Barbeau, so again, that, that's okay. I can deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> So guys, we uh, as assistant editors, I think it is only yeah. it is only right and fair and just that we take this opportunity to plug our shows, so that if you've uh, if you've stuck with us this long, you can go listen to us elsewhere. So, Professor, why don't you get started and tell us where else on the internet we can hear you? Thank you, kind sir. Uh, most of our work can be found at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network over there. You can find my solo shows, the Quarterbin Podcast and the Comics Reading Journal, as well as the show I do with my one and only child, M, 
the short box showcase. And the two of us have also been doing a side project since the middle of 2015, which often features feedback from one Mr. Gene Hendricks. And that is Dorkness to Light has its own separate feed. And over there we talk about the specifically religious or spiritual content that appears in various places in pop culture. Very cool. And Gene, where else can we find you? Well, currently, due to familial obligations, uh, my my podcasts are more or less on hold. But if you want to listen to back episodes of those, you can go to twotruefreaks.com, the same place that you find this show. And my show's, my single show would be the Hammer Podcast, where I have, it's basically general geeky musings, whatever pops into my head, sometimes alone, sometimes with a guest, as with uh, Mr. Jack and Eddie, where we spoke about Excalibur, which was mm-hmm. an awesome episode, I, yes, I must say. Yes, I, I, it was. I was just having flashbacks of that. My wife and I were watching uh, a very recent <laughs> episode of uh, Legends of Tomorrow that featured the team in Camelot. Aha! Uh-huh. Right. I've had flashbacks. I kept, I kept like, oh, Merlin, is it going to be that? No, it's not him. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he can't be anymore. Uh, another show I have on the network is The Quantum Cast, where my good friend Adam Worth and I talk about the... Uh, Kevin Bacon of the Marvel Universe, as we refer to him, the superhero known as Quasar. <laughs> and as, uh, again, on hiatus, unfortunately. But I am making several guest appearances on various shows, uh, usually in the network, sometimes over at the Neozaz network, and there are other projects in the works, but I will refrain from getting too far into that. You will he- be hearing more soon. And if you listen to almost any other comic book podcast on Two True Freaks, you will hear Gene's emails being read. <laughs> yes, Gene has. You saying I have a problem? No, no, no yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 yes, yes. Uh, very, very good, Gene. I'd also like to point out that uh, one of my favorite shows of Gene's is on the Two True Freaks Network, which is Anime Freaks. Along mm. with uh, Dr. Bill Robinson, and I'm not just saying that because I've been on it a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> and that and that will be coming back soon. Uh, we do have uh, one episode almost ready to come out, another one scheduled to be recorded soon. Excellent. And uh, so, if you like, news. Yeah, so if, you, if you like saucer-eyed chicks and speed lines, that's the show for you. Um, <laughs> Now, if you like dudes in rubber suits stomping on a city, my show is the one you might want to check out. You can find me. My home show is Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, which is available on com. And we talk about all aspects of Daikaiju culture, including uh, movies, TV shows, comic books, video games, toys, and all the rest. And uh, I try to cover everything from all different sides, not just focusing on the more well-known stuff, but also some more obscure stuff. And I can also be heard on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales from Terror, which is Two True Freaks' resident horror podcast, along with my brother and the other half of Dem Jackanetted Boys, uh, Jason Jackanetti and Chris Honeywell and the hair metal hero Chris Tyler. 
And uh, I do have a Hawkman blog, which I have not updated in the longest time, which you can find at beingcarterhall.blogspot.com if you want to hear my musings, or read my musings, I should say, about DC's Winged Wonders, Hawkman, and Hawkgirl in all of their various incarnations and iterations. So please check out those other fine podcasts if you'd like to, if you enjoyed what we were doing for you guys tonight. So, uh, guys, any final words to our lovely listeners? Then this evening? I hope we pass the audition. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't lock us back in the closet, Paul. Please! (laughs) And if you do, at least change the newspaper! (laughs) That's all we're asking. Is that too much to ask? Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week. In the 1980s, a group of impressionable young men watched way too much television. Today, they survive as defenders of that forgotten era. If something or someone from the 80s is in jeopardy, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the Chain Gang. This is terrible. With the 80s held hostage, I'm history. My only hope is to find the Chain Gang. The Chain Gang? I hear they're terrific. Will there be anything else, sir? Not unless you can help me find the Chain Gang. You're in luck. But you just found them. Oh, you done did it now. Chaos, you should have put this one in the vault, man. They not ready. They don't know what's coming, man. Oh, we got to drop this on them right here. Y'all ain't ready. Now they ready for none of this Your boy's a bad man When we invading the streets Make them clap a rapper stir They be dropping the heat Shock the world Now I'm standing alone I flip fools like them clamshell cellular phones You can't help but nod your head to the track Off the water down rap We be taking it back Give it to me straight Ain't no chasing it Check yourself in the mirror Ain't no facing it Cause you playing the role And you planning to fold It's the master plan We got the planet on hold We all over the streets Like your favorite sneaker Breaking up your sound like a drive-thru speaker Everything that I be spitting is strong After I rock, fast forward through the rest of the song We the monkey wrench that's gonna ruin your plan And don't fuck with your Cena, I'm a bad man the mic in my hands, I'm a bad man Even in a fight with my hands, I'm a bad man Living in the streets all my life, I'm a bad man I'm a bad man, I'm a bad man With the mic in my hands, I'm a bad man Even in the fight with the hands, I'm a bad man Living in the streets all my life, I'm a bad man I'm a bad man, I'm a bad man We devils, rocking ambient levels We set loose, I'm hot tunes to instrumentals And cats got one-liners, I drop several
viral Man, I think it's funny you choose Losing progress or running in place We making moves Y'all settle I rip rappers and take responsibility For making future Hall of Famers look third rate Y'all are lost for words Like conversation on your verse First date and ride beats Creep through side streets Loose sleep, no pads That's where rhymes leak Punchlines, man, don't even bang Y'all got knee slapping tracks Y'all bruising your leg You a rhyme writer, buddy, man That's a joke You ain't worthy of being my secretary, man That's a quote I flood tracks like cracks and bolts Some pussy rappers choked up With their own lines and they throw the mic in my hands I'm a bad man Even in a fight with my hands I'm a bad man Living in the streets all my life I'm a bad man I'm a bad man I'm a bad man With the mic in my hands I'm a bad man Even in the fight with the hands I'm a bad man Living in the streets all my life I'm a bad man I'm a bad man I'm a bad man Turn up the microphone and feed me I'm a beast and season they beats is what I eat Sixteen I leave you in the street My rhymes are sick and in gangrene And both feet is spreading up the leg And headed for the head Your rhymes are whack and style and proof Brain corrosion. I'm sitting with your chosen flows. I'm nice with mics. My hands will break your nose like Mikey Tyson. Fighting in his prime one time. And I shake up the room one time. Boom to the jaw. Your face is a cold type. All the blood and snot they mix. Jelly on the floor. My love is copping bricks. Belly on the floor. I rob you. You soften. You really ain't a problem. I solve you. 357 long nose revolve you. Acid in your face. But I look dissolved. I'm a bad, bad man. Yeah. Check it out. It's Bumpy Knuckles, baby. And I want you to say hello to the bad, bad. <laughs> you walk right into my trap. Now that I have the chain gang, no one can stop me. What about the kids, fool? I'll destroy the 80s forever. <laughs> what you talking about, Gary? Boys, I love it when a plan comes together. With the mic in my hands, I'm a bad man. Keeping in the fight with the hands, I'm a bad man. Living in the streets all my life, I'm a bad man.